Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 169, Best of Both Worlds, Parts 1 and 2. The moment we've all been waiting for. Another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we assimilate an episode of Star Trek and add its distinctiveness to our own. This week, the best of both worlds, parts one and two. Hang on a second. What? Yeah. I don't understand. We're doing... I just said we watch an episode, and you're telling me that I was supposed to have watched a second? Uh, oh. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. All right. So, I, I, out of all the questions that we got, Ken, I, yeah. you know, some would ask, so when are you going to start Deep Space Nine? When are you going to start... I would say that the second most asked question is, will you be treating the best of both worlds as one episode or two? Mm-hmm. And we decided it, it was actually kind of not last minute, but but close to our recording date that, that we had another conversation about of it and decided to go ahead and do it as one show. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason being that on Mission Log, we, um, you know, our show's a little bit different. It, it's not about plot points necessarily, and it's not about... Um, even though we do trivia, it's not about trivia. It's about themes. It's about ideas. And and we looked at this as one story right? with, with a few central themes and ideas. So I, I think that was really – I mean, am I off the mark here? No, I think you're right. I mean, okay. because the way you said it – and do we want to go ahead and say what your initial thought was? Mm-hmm. Part one carries a whole lot of message. And part two is just a fantastic bit of action. Yeah, but I think we would have had like a like a fifteen minute show next week (laughs) (laughs) if we'd done that. I mean, and and that's not to denigrate, and that's not to say anything bad about you know either episode. It's just to say, um, yeah, we kind of looked at it and thought, yeah, one cohesive story. That's pretty much what it was, even though Mm -hmm. that's not what it was. Now, I will say, if you're offended by the decision that we've made, uh, just pause today's show when John says Act Six, and wait a week, or. (laughs) If you really want to relive those bygone years, pause it and wait uh, four months, as we all had to do uh, back when the uh, part one ended and part two started. And, and that that seems like overkill, though. I would suggest just listening to the whole show. And, you know, if you're still angry next week, then, you know, send us an email or give us a call or hit us up on Facebook, because I'm going to tell you right now how to do all that stuff. And then John's just got a boatload, a starship full of trivia, actually, I would say. (laughs) Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we'd love that. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, that starship full of trivia that I was uh, talking about a moment ago, courtesy of Mr. John Champion. 
So, Ken, uh, as it goes with a lot of episodes or movies that we talk about, when something is really popular, Mm -hmm. you get a lot of trivia. Yes. (laughs) Because there's a lot of documentation. So I feel like we're kind of only scratching the surface today. But I do have some really interesting notes here for you. This episode is written by Michael Piller. um, And this was at the end of his one-year contract with The Next Generation. And uh, he was getting ready to leave. So this is really the the development of part one of Best of Both Worlds. Um, So this story about someone who is struggling with his position, his job, really reflects uh, the real world struggle that Michael Piller was having. And it was Gene Roddenberry who talked him into staying just for one more year. He said it would take one more year to, quote, really make this show catch fire. Uh, So Michael wrote part one pretty much on his own. There were revisions, but it was his baby. And he did not have a plan for part two. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kicked around by the writing staff. Now, uh, your friend, Rick Sternbach, was kind enough to share a little more detail with us on that process. And, and I, I love this. I just want to read it directly as he wrote it. He said, Mike Okuda and I, of course, were tech consultants on the show. The question came up in part two about how to burrow within the Borg collective consciousness to stop them from invading Sector 001 and trashing Earth. We talked a bit and wrote up some ideas with the producers involving different operational memory things and how we might deactivate them using data and locutus. We presented our notes to Michael Piller and some of the writers assembled and I think Piller's office. They all read their copies and it was really quiet. Finally, Piller looks up and says, well... You figure out Acts 3, 4, and 5. Do you want to do the teaser and Acts 1 and 2? Hmm. Fun story, but it also points out the fact that the producers trusted us techie types to help with ideas. We always offered, with a light touch, we knew that they were responsible for the drama, and we helped where we could to make the tech understandable. So thank you, Rick Sternback, for that great story. Now, right after part one aired, um, yes, now the the cast gets to take time off their summer hiatus, but the writing staff really do not. Um, So you have a lot of people who have been around for seasons one, two, and three who are leaving, and we had that migration of new people coming in, uh, Renee and, of course, Michael Piller, and uh, we've got another new name here. Um, Remember, Ken, I was talking about a writer who was part of the internship program who came into the show and and actually sold a story. Well, we've got a similar situation here. We've got another kid who is here because of a college internship program. His name is Brandon Braga. Keep an eye on him. I think he's going places. (laughs) I I will do that. Thank you. Okay. Uh, This episode, these two episodes, directed by Cliff Bowl, and he calls these two his best work on The Next Generation. Not surprising there, and not partially because of the bigger budgets and the larger scale of production that he got to play with, really making it feel like a feature film. Uh, Part one was an Emmy Award winner for Outstanding Visual Effects and Outstanding sound editing. Um, Now, this is not the first two-parter in Star Trek. We, of course, talked about the Menagerie way back when, and uh, Encounter at Farpoint was originally aired as a feature, but later divided into parts one and two. But this is the first cliffhanger. Um, Now, it is a time-honored tradition in TV production uh, to build anticipation for the next season. Uh, We've got right at three months apart. Part one aired June 18th, 1990. Part two aired September 24th, 1990. So it's interesting that this story was at one point considered to stretch out over three or four episodes or even more. 
um, in fact being a persistent story thread that would carry on throughout the next generation. There's a lot of excitement among the writing staff about that possibility. And um, I've actually got a handful of story drafts and memos. Um, and there were multiple script drafts, of course. Uh, the scripts for part two were secretly coded so that they could detect photocopy leaks if any occurred. No copies were allowed to be made by the person who received the script. And uh, the scripts had to be returned to the production office for shredding if someone wanted to throw one away. Hmm. Um, let's address a rumor here really quickly. There were rumors about Patrick Stewart not returning. Um, and that was one of the reasons that there was this cliffhanger between episodes or, or the end of season three and beginning of season four. To be very clear, these were fan rumors. <laughs> these were not uh, grounded in reality. Um, in one draft of the story, uh, had it carried out that long, the, the bulk of the second and possibly third part would have actually been on Earth with a lot of Borg action being seen from Paris, of all places, looking up in the sky and seeing the Borg cube and taking out the Eiffel Tower for all we know. Uh, another odd story choice that I think you will see in some of the documents that I post uh, was the over-sexualization of everything. Just an odd choice from the story draft right up front. Uh, you got Riker, you got one of, one of uh, Admiral Hansen's lieutenants, and then Shelby herself. It's just sort of uh, an interesting subtext that was added in those early drafts. Um, so like I said, we'll be posting a number of discovered documents over the coming days and, and week uh, related to these episodes and then the next episode, Family. Um, you know how I like to mention ship names, Ken? I do, uh, yes. This one, you mentioned the Tolstoy, the Kyushu, and the Melbourne. And uh, here we get to go back to Rick Sternbach, who we mentioned. Um, Rick just recently, as of the recording of this podcast, posted a story on his Facebook page about how the Melbourne was not named in the script as having been lost at the Battle of Wolf 359. And... Um, it was after seeing that in the script, Riker had been offered to be the captain of the Melbourne. They actually suggested, Rick and, and his team suggested, hey, it'll be a lot more dramatic if that is one of the ships that is lost at the Battle of Vault 359. So that's how that made its way into the script. And we also have pictures of some of the ships that he worked on that we'll be posting, um, ships that were at the Battle of Vault 359. It's amazing to me that that was not something that was offered by a writer i know right <laughs> it's, i mean you know it's a, it's sort of like yeah, that, that that seems like a natural thing to have happen which you know maybe is why it didn't come from a writer it just came from a guy who was like wow you know it would make that really stink <laughs> right, right. Yeah. now um the borg costumes in this episode got an upgrade uh we talked about how bill tice had left the show and his close associate dorinda wood had kind of filled the gap until the arrival of bob blackman this was blackman's first shot at the costumes and they were modified uh quite a bit from what we originally saw in q who michael westmore uh, also had the help of his son, Michael, Michael Jr., in providing the laser effect on Locutus. Just a little laser pointer that cost about $200, and that's what gave them such a good optical effect at the end of the show. Um, Michael Jr., in fact, has always done the little electronics like uh, Data's head or you know, inside Data's finger or Geordi's blinking lights when they take the visor off. That's all his work anytime you see something flashing and beeping on a costume or makeup piece. Um, 
The revamp also goes with the Borg set pieces. Uh, they got a kind of a, a retooling since the last time. And uh, we also see the return of the matte painting that we saw in Q-Who. It got a touch-up as well. And uh, this was the first time they started using airbrush for makeup on Star Trek. Uh, you could cut that process down from a few hours to a few minutes and kind of assembly line what that makeup would look like. Um, Hey, and uh, about all those ships at Wolf 359, somewhere off the shelf model kits actually given to the production by AMT Ertl, and others were concept models that they had from, well, previous iterations of what would have been Star Trek. And then you had just some kit bash constructs from pieces that they had laying around. And it was up to Mike Okuda to give them the battle damage that they got for their on screen imagery at the end of Wolf 359. Let's talk about guest stars. We've got Elizabeth Dennehy as Lieutenant Shelby. She is, of course, the daughter of well-known actor Brian Dennehy. She has appeared on The Guiding Light, but this was actually her second professional credit on screen. Wait a minute. Hold on. She's actually the daughter of Brian Dennehy? Yeah. I did not know that. Can I tell you what's embarrassing, though? I did know The Guiding Light. Oh, really? Yeah, we've talked about how I spent a couple of summers... Yeah. <laughs> wasting my time watching uh, soap operas because my mom watched soap operas. I don't mm-hmm. think I'm shaming her by saying that. Um, what's funny to me, though, is we actually get to go all the way back to the very first episode of Star Trek with this discussion because I'm pretty sure that she was on screen with uh, with the Zaz. <gasps> yeah, the, Michael Zaslow. You remember him oh. from uh, picking things up off the ground and eating them and dying in, yes. uh, in, the, man, in the Man Trap? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so there we Cannot go. Cannot forget the Zaz. Yeah, you got to bring the Zaz when you can, dude. You got to oh, bring the Zaz. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. All right. So after Star Trek and after the Zaz, Elizabeth Dennehy has appeared on such things as Gattaca. She was in that movie. She was in the show Boston Legal, of course, William Shatner and that, uh, The Mentalist and Masters of Sex. And uh, finally, the late, great George Murdoch plays Admiral Hansen. Uh, he had guest shots on a lot of TV shows, including one of the creepiest Twilight Zone episodes ever, The Dummy. Uh, plus, he was on I Spy, It Takes a Thief, Bonanza, Hawaii Five-O, Six Million Dollar Man. He was Dr. Salick on the original Battlestar Galactica. He was Lieutenant Ben Scanlon on Barney Miller. And uh, we certainly cannot overlook the role of God, that's God in quotes, in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Still don't know what he needs with a starship. And uh, finally, I think it's kind of cool to point out that locutus means spoken or having spoken. It is the participle version of the Latin word locor, which means talk or I talk. With the decision to tackle both parts of Best of Both Worlds in this one episode, one might easily call this episode of Mission Log, the best of both of the best of both worlds. Laugh, or you will be assimilated. Prologue. Following a distress signal, the Enterprise arrives at Jure 4, an outlying planet housing a Federation colony called New Providence. When the away team beams down, they find a hole on the ground where the colonists should be. Act 1. To figure out what just happened to 900 people, Admiral Hansen and Lieutenant Commander Shelby from Starfleet Tactical stop by to offer some help. They know what's up. It's probably the Borg. 
Starfleet, and in particular Shelby, has been trying to figure out what to do ever since Q Who first aired. They don't really have a strategy yet, but Shelby knows more about them than anyone. When Hansen turns down an invitation to play poker with Riker, Riker and Shelby leave. Hansen levels with Picard. Riker is up for another commission, captain of the Melbourne. So, you know, he should probably take it instead of taking second billing the rest of his life. Now, who would make a good new first officer? None other than that nice young woman, Shelby. And in case you thought Shelby wasn't aware of this, she tells Riker flat out, yeah, she wants his job. At the poker game, Riker humiliates everyone at the table by bluffing his way to victory. The next morning, Shelby has taken it upon herself to start with the away mission early. When Riker beams down to find her working with Data, and he's not too happy about the breach of protocol. No matter, though, Shelby has nailed it. The total loss of the colony is the work of the Borg. Act 2. Admiral Hansen has left, but Shelby has stayed behind on the Enterprise, and Riker tells Picard that he has every intention to stay behind as well. Picard encourages him to reconsider the opportunity of command. Riker confides in Deanna. He doesn't get it, and she plays the good counselor. She realizes he's happy on the Enterprise, but he's conflicted about what he wants. Well, time to get to work. In engineering, the usual gang are talking about what is known about the Borg, their decentralized systems, uh, that may be of benefit. Everybody is beat, but Shelby wants to press on. Riker cuts her off. Time to get some rest. And that is an order. Not much time to really get comfortable, though. The next day, Admiral Hansen sends a message that a ship has been lost, last reporting an encounter with an unknown cube-shaped vessel. The Enterprise is an hour away. The close ship, of course, is set. The best they've got is maybe rotating shield modulations and adjusting phasers, basically teching a little more of the tech than they've already got. Before you know it, the Enterprise finds its own intercept course being intercepted by a cube. It's the Borg. Act 3. With the Borg, not a lot of, hi, how you doing, how's the weather back home? This Borg ship calls out Jean-Luc Picard by name and tells him to prepare to be assimilated. Not even a handshake. The Borg start a tractor beam, but the new Enterprise shield modulation is totally working perfectly for about 20 seconds. They're losing, and a volley of weapons fire from the Enterprise does nothing. Then it gets really nasty. A Borg beam literally cuts into the Enterprise, making hash out of engineering and taking a few crew members out with it. Shelby jumps up to suggest a data, randomly changing phaser settings, and that actually works just enough the tractor beam is broken, and the Enterprise can get away. For now. The Borg cube follows, and the damaged Enterprise is now entering the Mutara Nebula. Well, not really. It's a different nebula. To hide for a while and think things through. Watching the playback of their recent skirmish, the crew thinks they may have one advantage. Rig up the deflector shield for a massive burst that could wipe out the Borg ship. Meanwhile, they'll also modify hand phasers to match the frequency that worked the last time. Shelby has an idea, too, to separate the saucer section, but Riker dismisses it. Riker makes his way to a meeting with Picard, and who should be there? Yeah, Shelby. What, did she beam herself from the conference room? Anyway, Picard has heard her idea, and he agrees with Riker. Not now, but it may be a good fallback position. Time for a tense conversation in a parked turbo lift? Ooh, I thought you'd never ask. Riker lays into Shelby about breaking the chain of command. He was serious before. He's serious about it now, and he will keep on being serious about it when she bypasses him to go right to Picard. Shelby totally apologizes. 
Her apology comes off, though, as putting Riker in his place, that he's playing it safe and he's in her way to get to be first officer. Maybe he has no place being captain of his own ship. Glad we got that cleared up. Act 4. Picard is touring his ship in the dead of night. Guinan finds him in Ten Ford, and she has some words of encouragement. Hey, you and your ship may not survive, but don't worry. Some humans, somewhere, will make it. Probably. Maybe. The pep talk ends when what amounts to a depth charge from the Borg cube drives out the Enterprise from the nebula. Back to square one. The Borg tractor beam comes on, gripping the Enterprise, and now Borg drones start appearing on the bridge. Riker and Worf can fight them off a little bit, but Captain Picard is soon grabbed by another. Then he and the Borg drones are beamed back to the Borg cube. Riker orders a pursuit, and that path is taking them directly to Sector 001 of the galaxy. In other words, Earth. While in pursuit, Riker sees an opportunity to beam an away team member over to the Borg ship to try to recover Picard. There's also the opportunity to bring that ship out of warp drive since they will need all the power they've got to fire their new deflector dish weapon. As Riker gets ready to beam over, Shelby objects, and Deanna backs up Shelby. He is now captain of the Enterprise. Just as Riker would keep Picard from danger, it is she who will keep Riker out of danger. Shelby will lead the away team. Act 5. Phasers in hand, Shelby, Data, Worf, and Dr. Crusher beam over to the Borg cube. They won't be bothered as long as they're not a threat. So explains Data to Dr. Crusher, who until now has not actually been face-to-face with the Borg. Data and Dr. Crusher speculate about what they're seeing. The whole Borg ship acts as a kind of link-up between the drones and its systems. They may, in theory, be disabled as some of those nodes are knocked out. Think on that for a bit. Maybe save it for later. Admiral Hansen is on the line letting Riker know what's happening. The fleet will head to Wolf 359, a real star, by the way, to try to fight off the Borg before they can get to Earth. Riker is doing what he can to slow them down, but, oh yeah, Picard may not be coming back. Picard's comm badge is picked up, but when the away team finds it, it's just a badge on a uniform. No Picard to be found. With the deflector weapon just about ready, they're still trying to figure out how to get the Borg to drop out a warp. Oh, uh... How about those power distribution nodes? One phaser won't bring it down, but a couple will. And then another one, and then another one. Seems to be working. It also seems to be really peeving the Borg because now they do see the away team as a threat. They start to close in, and one drone looks awfully familiar. It's Picard, but he's covered in Borg technology. There's nothing they can do to get close to him, but the away team does manage to beam out. On the bridge... Everyone explains to Riker what's going on, but he needn't hear from them when he can get it straight from the drone's mouth. Meet the former Captain Picard, Locutus of Borg. He tells Riker that resistance is futile. They will be assimilated. And with that, Riker makes the call to use the new weapon. Fire. OMG, last time on Star Trek, all that happened. And now, the exciting conclusion of The Best of Both Worlds. Act 6. Fire? It doesn't work. I mean, the deflector dish fires, but nothing happens. Funny thing about the Borg, and especially why they wanted to assimilate Jean-Luc Picard, now they know everything Picard used to know. Everything, like weapon strategy, how to order tea, the collected works of William Shakespeare. Take that number one, as Locutus calls him. All done here? Okay, uh, the Borg ship flies off, leaving the wounded Enterprise. 
Admiral Hansen contacts Riker to let him know that a big fleet is assembling at Wolf 359 to fight the cube. They've even got help from the Klingons on the way. The Enterprise will be late to the party, but they'll get there. One last thing. Hansen promotes Riker, field promotion to captain of the Enterprise. Picard is a casualty of war. Time to weaponize again. New strategy with the hand phasers. They will get a new chip that automatically retunes them after every shot. Thanks, Wesley. Shelby is working on the shields. The Enterprise will be back up and running in a couple of hours. And Riker takes the time to kind of sort of make peace with Shelby. He tells her she did a good job. She gave them their chance. She's so grateful by this bit of praise, she can't help but throw her hat into the ring for first officer again. Yeah, we get it. No time to argue with the point, though. Admiral Hansen contacts the Enterprise again. The fleet have engaged the Borg at Wolf 359, and it's not going well. Then the signal just drops out. Act 7. You know who would make a really great first officer? Yeah, Shelby. Surprising everyone on board, including himself, Riker makes the promotion. It's still no closer to a solution to defeat the Borg, and they are still no closer to rescuing Picard, but the Enterprise presses onward. Riker has a serious case of WWPD, what Picard do, and Guinan knows it. She catches him in the captain's ready room and gives him some advice. Let go. The only way to prevail is to let go of the lingering question of what Picard would have done. It makes sense, emotionally and strategically. That chair, and the other one, of course, is Riker's now. Don't dwell on that too long, though. Look, it's Wolf 359. No welcome party, though. It was a massacre. No life signs, and only the debris of Federation ships remain. Act 8. Following the Borg cube, Riker sets about his plan. The Enterprise hulls will separate, but he's got a special assignment for Worf and Data. Riker contacts Locutus with the attempt to discuss terms. Locutus sees it as deception, but Riker reminds the part of him that may still be Picard, at least the knowledge of Picard, that he trusts Riker. Also, there are no terms. There is no discussion. The Borg don't do that. Okay, time for a fight then. The saucer section lifts off from the Enterprise and all weapons are fired at the cube. What Locutus did not expect, though, is the saucer being used as a weapon, firing an antimatter spread. That gives Worf and Data enough cover to launch a shuttlecraft undetected. Better yet, they've got a transporter in that shuttle. The two find Locutus, render him unconscious, beam him back to the shuttle, and then beam back to the Enterprise just as the Borg destroy the shuttle. Act 9. The saucer is disabled, and the Borg are powering up, but the cube just dashes away, still on course for Earth. Dr. Crusher turns her attention to deborgifying Locutus and seeing if there's any Jean-Luc left inside. He is resistant, but he will speak for the Borg while he is on the Enterprise. Data is working on something. There is a kind of subspace communication between the Borg ship and Locutus. In fact, the communication is widespread and is how all Borg communicate, send and receive commands. Yeah, great if they could turn it off, but it also results in the destruction of the drone if one is removed from the network. Data has another suggestion. Rather than try to remove the Borg tech from Picard, he will try to communicate with Locutus. It's an artificial intelligence thing you wouldn't understand. Data better hurry, though. The cube is in Earth's neighborhood, having just done a flyby to take pictures of Saturn. Act 10. Data is working on a way to connect himself with Locutus to learn anything he can about how the Borg operate. He's about to seriously tech that tech for all it's worth, and Riker is all just, yeah, 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 make it snappy. 
They'll get to Earth in about 40 minutes, but the Borg will beat them to it with plenty of time to spare. Planet by planet, Jupiter, then Mars, the Borg pass right by any defenses and get awfully close to Earth. Data is making some progress connecting to Locutus. Dr. Crusher watches for Picard's life signs, and Deanna hangs out to see if there's any part of Locutus' personality that breaks through. He's learning a lot, like how the Borg have their commands broken down into simple subroutines that they all share, defense, navigation, etc. Then Locutus kind of freaks out. He uses his Borg arm to try to break the connection, but Data stops him physically by breaking the device. At that moment, something happens. There's more neural activity, and Deanna announces that she is sensing Picard. That slows down the Borg cube, but they haven't broken their link to Locutus, and maybe that's an advantage if they all have to share a mind. Riker asks Data if he can plan a command in Locutus that would disarm them. He's trying, but to no avail. The Borg cube starts in with the tractor beam as Enterprise weapons and shields are failing. Riker orders Wesley to program a collision course with the cube. Wesley's like, hey, won't we also die? Never mind. Then Locutus speaks. As Picard regains consciousness, sleep. Things are going badly. The Borg are tearing up the Enterprise. Hull failure is imminent. Then it stops. Data figured out what Picard was saying. Sleep was the command to tell the Borg to regenerate and shut off all systems. But there is a feedback malfunction which will cause the cube to self-destruct. Convenient, huh? Riker makes the call, let it happen, and get the Enterprise to a safe distance. What effect will that have on Picard? We'll have to wait and see. And then that Borg cube blows up real good. Picard still looks like Locutus, but he is no longer Borg. Dr. Crusher will remove the technology from his body, but he tells Riker that he remembers everything about his ordeal. Shelby is leaving. She's got work to do rebuilding the fleet, and Riker is still a little prickly about his career path. The Enterprise has got some time to be in for repairs, and Picard has resumed his position as captain, but something isn't right. He stares into space from his ready room, seemingly haunted by what just happened. The end. Would you have put Picard right back in the captain's chair? Nope. Okay. <laughs> no. Would you have ever put Picard back in the captain's chair? Well, yeah, eventually, because he does have that strategic advantage of having remembered everything. That's and- true. You know, we, we did get the technology out of him. Yeah, unlike years so, later when he will have seen everything. But that's a, right. whole, that's a, whole, different, right. uh, that's a whole different show. Yeah. Speaking of the captain's chair, so, so Riker gets into the captain's chair, right? Mm-hmm. And, and immediately starts saying, make it so about everything. And I got a problem with that. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's Picard's line. Picard is the one who says, make it so. So I want to run past a few other ones that once Riker becomes captain, okay, good. Uh, thinks he should say, um, so, so I, I, I'm going to give you an order. And then what I'm going to say is, like, do it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or make it happen, maybe. Yeah. Or bring the noise. I like bring the noise a lot. Mm-hmm. That's actually, well, you know what we could do, Captain? We could do this thing that would tech the tech and do that. Yeah, bring the noise, <laughs> would say Captain <laughs> Riker. Like or did I stutter? Mm-hmm. I think I like. Or make like a tree. I like that, too. <laughs> make like I've, a tree might be my favorite. I've got a couple. Of, I can see a guy like Rocker, uh, like Riker saying, uh, Get it like, with, with, with an I, not with an E. Like, get her done. Get like it. that? Yeah. 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 It's not bad. Or, uh, or, or just like a, a my man and a high five or just a, like a rock it out. You know? <laughs> my man. Yeah. Okay. Was that a yes? <laughs> <laughs> get uh, her done. Hey, 
creeping line. Yeah. Uh, Picard says to Admiral Hanson regarding Shelby after they first meet, you seem rather taken with her. And, and, uh, and Hanson just says, just an old man's fantasies. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Not, not like, and then and Picard doesn't follow it up with like, no, I, I mean that you think she's good at her job. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Uh, that's what I meant. That's what uh, I thought you meant. What are you saying? Good are at their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I got to say about Shelby, though, fascinating thing to me. Um, I was really interested that uh, Starfleet has actually been working on a Borg response, considering how far away the Borg were. 7,000 light years away, they said. And, yeah. you know, we think about responses to threats you know, today. And, you know, if we've got 7,000 light years to worry about it, and I don't know how much that is in time. Although it, it, it actually started thinking about it, it doesn't seem like it's a whole lot in time because Wolf 359 is only seven light years away from Earth. Yeah. 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 And, and they encountered the Borg only 7,000 light years away. Right. So multiply the, what, 15 minutes that it <laughs> takes to get from Wolf 359 to Earth yeah. by 1,000. Mm -hmm. It's really still not that much time, but I guess no. there was any direction they could have gone. But once Q tips them off, you know, that there is an Earth. Uh, anyway. I'm, I'm, it's strange I'm, to think we get that excited about it. What? The Borgwood? Yeah, yeah. Well, we were very impressive. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what I missed, by the way, was the Borg babies. Oh. Probably a good oh. idea to get rid of those, but I missed oh. the Borg babies. I know I was actually just impressed that, like, you know, 7,000 light years away, very far away, may never actually get here. Uh, Starfleet is totally surprised that they actually did get here as soon as they did, but they've been working on it the whole time. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. that's uh, that's that's forward thinking on Starfleet's part. So right. kudos to them is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah, it, it is uh, kind of a strange choice. And then Shelby, they say, she knows more about the Borg than anybody. Yeah. Well, except for the thousand or more people who are on the Enterprise when they actually encounter the Borg. And, and Guinan. And Guinan. And right. members of Guinan's race. Right. <laughs> right. Uh oh, oh, that's sad. Well, um, I'm just saying there are people who know more about it. You go to other uh, go to other quadrants. There may actually be books. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Um, a, a learning moment in this episode. Uh, mm -hmm. Wesley learns an important lesson here about not trusting adults. Yeah. You know, um, and, and now I do like the parallel about Riker's poker playing <laughs> abilities matching his command skills when he's facing off against Lucutus. But uh, boy, the look of defeat on Wesley's face during that poker game was kind of entertaining yeah i was actually thinking he didn't belong there not just mm -hmm. because he's a kid but it's a senior officer's thing and he's yeah. an ensign i understand he's always had this special whatever and yes i know but still he's still a kid you and me are down and you know peeling potatoes yeah <laughs> right to their well, I've, been, the I've, been trying to, I've been trying to get in on that game since we got here <laughs> right right says one of us yeah please can someone just <laughs> give us a deck of cards please <laughs> yeah yeah I love it how in science fiction it doesn't matter what the device is. Someone will look at it and tell you what it is. Mm -hmm. the, the nodes in the Borg ship, they're kind of these like, you know, green, glowy kind of pyramid-shaped things. And uh, and they totally know what those do. They're like, oh, yeah, it's communication. It talks to the thing. It connects everybody. And, <laughs> and uh, boy, if we only took those out, don't worry about the other stuff. My, my favorite, there was this episode of Lost in Space and – John Robinson is looking at a thing and it's just like literally a platform with like a dome on it. It goes, yeah, it looks like some sort of matter transfer device. Well, sure. Okay. Because it's, uh, <laughs> you know, could have been like some alien unicycle, but you just, you just said it was that. All right. Hand them a great big gel cap though. They got no clue. 
right. That's a callback, by the way, because I know you love to call back callbacks. I do. Um, I do. You know, so yeah, so they see those those node things, and they they have an idea. And Beverly says, "Yeah, well, why don't we look at it from the mosquitoes' point of view?" And I will mm-hmm. say one of the things that's most depressing about this episode is so we still have mosquitoes in the twenty fourth century. <laughs> Either that or, you know, we've had them recently enough that we still remember. Oh, don't even mention mosquitoes. I remember one time. Well, my granddad told me. Okay, still. <laughs> I, I want done with mosquitoes, I guess. Is what yeah, I'm we saying. should be done with mosquitoes. I mean, uh, uh, Data doesn't know what the early bird getting the worm is. But uh, but he totally gets uh, the mosquito analogy. Totally gets the mosquito analogy. Well, he kind of gets the mosquito analogy. He says, oh, that's an interesting analogy. Say more. That's kind of like when you laugh at a joke. <laughs> that you don't actually get. Exactly. Tell me why that's funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> by the way, I mentioned the Mutara Nebula because literally that's what that shot was. Yeah. That they, they use footage from Star Trek too. But they did some cool, uh, they did a lot of new photography on the Enterprise model for this mm-hmm. and um, kind of put it in a smoky room to get a little depth in front of that. So I, very effective. It was know? great. Yeah. 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 It actually, I mean, first of all, it was great to see the Matara Nebula, always mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. But then, um, yeah, the, 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 the sort of haze around it uh, mm-hmm. made it um, more, it, it put it there in a different way. Yeah, even creepier. Yeah. Um, I thought the Borg have a very interesting way of determining what is a threat and what is not, because that's a thing now. Well, if they don't see this as a threat, they won't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, like, say, an armed away team with arguably the smartest guy from the Enterprise, Data. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I guess you could chalk it up to efficiency. Like, we can't bother with that. We got to work on this other stuff that we're working on. But they seem like a threat, particularly after you just stole their captain. Yeah. Well, unless you're so sure of yourself and your abilities that you think they can't possibly pose a threat. I mean, why are you going to waste energy on something that really can't hurt you? Mm -hmm. That would be the sensible thing. Yeah. It's like dealing with Internet trolls. Oh, why, why, why spend your energy on that? I mean, you know, you've actually got something that you're going to do. Why waste your time with that thing? Or, you know, if you're, I don't know, if you're Safeway and somebody opens up a tiny little bodega a mile from a nearest Safeway, you don't care because you're Safeway, right? You're saying that Safeway or the Borg? I'm saying the Borg or Safeway (laughs) and apparently they're a popular internet something or other that they don't need to worry about trolls. Yeah. Nor shops around the corner. Um, I, I will say I'm not sure that we're doing the Borg. And I, well, hmm. Mm-hmm. So the Borg decide on Locutus, right? They want Locutus, yeah, because uh, he's going to speak for uh, speak for the Borg. Two people. I'm wondering if we added pettiness to the Borg's uh, collective, though, because because you know Picard gets up there. I'm sorry, Locutus gets up there. Yeah, and he says your resistance is hopeless. Number one. It's like, oh, you know what he did? He like put the knife in and twisted it, which, uh, you know, going back to the just the very last thing you said, they don't see humans as, uh, so I guess they actually do deal with trolls now that I think about it, because they don't see humans as a threat, <laughs> but they'll go ahead and they'll go ahead and get down in the mud with them, you know, hurl insults, make them feel bad, make them feel bad. That's actually one of the subroutines being run by the Borg, apparently. So I wonder if, all right, so if they pick that up from Picard, is that something lingering in the back of Picard's head? Like, I've really <laughs> got to find a way to make Riker feel bad at some point. No, it's not making Riker feel bad. Uh, Picard always revels in those moments, though. Like, remember when somebody was, like, calling and he went over and, you know, checked for dust on top of the plaque on, mm-hmm. on, on the side? Or He loves making people wait. Yeah. He, he loves sort of playing with communication. He actually, he might be the perfect, he might be the perfect choice for Locutus, now that I think about it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. 
Hey, I, I didn't mention it in the wrap up and uh, because there's a lot to cover and thank you for indulging me. That goes to you and everybody listening. Mm. Um, but Picard as Locutus uh, shedding a single tear. That is a great shot. Uh, almost as good as Sarah crying at the Mozart concert. No, I think it was a better shot. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I didn't buy the shot of uh, of Sarek, and, and I didn't really say much about it because it struck me as an effect shot. Uh-huh. There was something about the shot with Mark Leonard that did did not work the same way, and I felt like this was Picard tearing up. I don't know, uh-huh. I don't, or, or 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 Patrick Stewart tearing yeah. up. Excuse yeah, me. Yeah. There was there was it, it just worked better somehow to me. Yeah, it's incredibly dramatic, and it's a great special effect, mm. draining the color from Picard's face, and they, yeah. they just desaturated the image in film and only kept color in the areas that would stand out, like the laser and the and the light. But it's a great, great, great moment. It's kind of subtle too. I didn't realize it was happening until it was done. Yeah, yeah, I had to yeah. go back and rewatch it and just like see that moment happen. It's really, really terrific. Um, since we talk about Shakespeare very often on this show and very often in Star Trek, kind of a Shakespearean thing that covers you for, well, a big budget effect sequence, have the fight take place off stage mm-hmm. and show the aftermath. They did that for Wolf 359, and it literally was because they couldn't afford to do a massive space battle on a TV budget. But you just get there. You hear what's going on. Then you get there and you see the wreckage. Terrific, terrific moment. I thought very well played. It's more realistic too. I mean, if if the Enterprise had been the only ship to get away right. <laughs> from Wolf Three Five Nine, you'd be like, "Oh wow, yeah. nobody is ever going to die on this show ever." Um, I, I had a, I had a funny moment. So there, so the Borg ships flying in, right? And mm-hmm. they come and they get to our they get to our inner defenses and they get to Mars and and, and Mars attacks, yay! And yep. Mars is rebuffed. Boo! <laughs> <laughs> three ships. That's our Martian defense. Seriously, three ships. There were three really good ships. Well, no, That's they weren't. <laughs> they didn't. Even, their shields didn't even hold up for a second. The Borgers was like, "Oh yeah, bing, bing, bing," and that's it. it. It was kind of funny. Had you done that shot for the maximum drama, it would have been really close to the camera. It would have been a huge explosion. But I love the way that it's so far away. It's almost so silent as it happens. Yes, yeah, it's re- like picking off gnats. I know yeah. I've mentioned this in the show before, but uh, it reminded me of the part from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where the Vlahurg and the Jetravarded. No, it wasn't the Jetravarded, but the Vlahurg and somebody else get together and they, they're going to attack Earth. Mm-hmm. And they fly their armadas here, and their armadas are swallowed by a small dog. <laughs> <laughs> because they have no right. sense of what we are or our scale or anything like that. Uh, and I felt kind of that way, too, when Mars attacked the Borg. That's great. Um, another striking visual is Data grabbing Locutus's arm and breaking it off. Mm-hmm. That, that's so it, It's a, a really powerful moment anyway, but the look of helplessness and confusion on Patrick Stewart's face... Yeah. It's great. Oh, it's so great. And it, it every time I watched it, I kept just asking us, well, what's going on in his head right now? Because it, it was kind of wonderful to see him try to figure out what was happening. Um, you, you ever seen like, a Roomba get stuck in a corner? Yeah, there you go. That was it. That was <laughs> kind it. of like that. Yeah. Uh, of course, yeah. this was 20 years before yeah. the Roomba, so he wouldn't have known. No. He wouldn't have that no. as a reference for 15 years, I guess, before the Roomba. The, the Borg would know. I mean, where, where do Roombas come from, let's face it. You know? <laughs> um, and Riker, he lays in the collision course, collision course set, and once again, no announcement to the crew what's happening. Yeah, there's no time. No. No, he, 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 tells, uh, he, he tells Jordy, prepare to jump to warp speed. Jordy's like, yeah, I'm ready. Let's do that. Oh, 
Oh. <laughs> into that ship. Where are we going? Does that actually work, by the way? I thought warp sort of like transcended that. Yeah. Yeah, that that you're actually warping space. Right. So if you if you you yeah. can't jump to warp into a ship, can you? Uh, well, maybe it's a very short warp jump. I, well, maybe I guess. they'll actually physically occupy the space of the oh, warp. Oh, maybe guy. so. That's an interesting idea. And really yeah. geeky. I love Crusher's yeah. face on that order. Young Wesley Crusher on that face. Uh, on yeah. that order because yeah. he knows that this is it for him for eternity. This is it right here. And I don't mean he's going to die. I mean, they're going to look at his career later. If there's mm-hmm. anybody left to look at his career and be like, oh, makes sense and crashes Enterprise. That's pretty much it. Oh, yeah, we studied him at the Academy. The don'ts and don'ts of Sturving and Starfleet. Uh, lesson one, don't crash your starship. Honestly, the creases aren't even out of his uniform yet. Yeah. <laughs> and just, Boy, that's it's still sad. got that new uniform smell. And now, like, his, his lot in life is going to have been crash really? the Enterprise. I wondered if one Borg cube could really take over Earth. Um, because we, uh, this is all we know of the Borg right now. It's just this cube, you know, and um, and then I was thinking about the the mathematics of okay, they they've got great defenses. They can just hover above Earth and pretty much take out anything. Now, assuming there are people on Earth who who have a you know scientific understanding of what's going on, and kind of like the Enterprise, you know, oh, well, maybe if we change the phaser and tech that tech and a different tech, we'll be able to fight them a little bit. But the Borg could work pretty fast. Have you ever heard this this mathematical idea that? If you said that there was such thing as vampires, mm-hmm. then the entire population of Earth would have either become them or be dead within a generation, <laughs> you know, just because they like the Borg. The idea of a vampire is they have to keep either killing or making more vampires. So it's not just like you've got a handful of them hanging out in the 20th century. By the time you get to a story like uh, uh, Interview with the Vampire, yeah. it's like, no, once you have one 300, 400, 500 years ago, pretty much you give it a generation, everybody's gone. <laughs> because well, they have to. There, there are two things I'll say about that. I mean, okay. first of all, if the vampire is smart, mm-hmm. then you know he would just kill as he needs to and he wouldn't make a whole lot of other vampires because you don't want that to happen because eventually you're going to starve, right? Yeah. yeah. If, if everybody becomes vampires. But the other thing is, have you read the book I Am Legend? Oh, no, no. Never read the book, actually. Yeah, it actually addresses it, it addresses that in a really interesting way. Should mm. I ruin it for people? Because the book's about 50 years old. Oh, I, I think the, yeah, the spoiler statute limitations. I off. hope so. Yeah, listen, yeah. Okay, just fast forward a tiny bit. It, it, the movie made no sense. What's fantastic about I Am Legend is we're actually following the person who ends up being the last vampire. Or the last human, excuse mm. me. Because what you're talking about is actually happening. And uh, and yeah, he he becomes the thing that vampires fear, which is yeah. sort of an interesting turning it on its head. As opposed to there being one vampire that everybody fears, there's one human that all the vampires fear. So that is an interesting question, though. You know, the Borg is specific about wanting Picard. We're just going to take Picard. That's all we need, mm-hmm. and we keep leaving the Enterprise alone. Well, and no, they're they, going to assimilate everybody. It's just they need somebody to explain it for them. All right, but they skip right past that opportunity and just go to Earth instead of sending a whole bunch of drones over to the Enterprise and saying, you know what, you guys are a pain. We're just going to assimilate all of you. Hey, look, now we got two ships instead of one. Well, oh, see, this should actually be in the next segment. The Enterprise has something for which to fight right now. Maybe if you go ahead and take over Earth, which is their ultimate goal, then the Enterprise Mm -hmm. no longer has a reason to fight, and then they don't fight anymore. The Borg might be thinking. 
Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, okay. I don't know. But yeah. we'll probably come back to that in a bit. One last note. I just want to say that the musical score in this is great. Uh, once again, Ron Jones. And this time around, he adds some cool, creepy choral effects in there, um, all digitized, uh, but that really sounds appropriate for the Borg. Uh, so it's a, a nice change for this episode. <laughs> I will say, though, mm-hmm. if you watch it the way we did, because, you know, there were months, as we talked about last time. Maybe yeah, three, maybe yeah. four. <laughs> there were months between the two episodes, right? When you sit down to watch it, though, that, like the the way we did, like one immediately, and then you know the next one, mm. you got that bum, 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 bum. You know, at the end of season one, mm-hmm. and then the beginning of season two should have been because <laughs> the very last thing you hear is fire, and right. then you're right, twenty seconds after firing, uh, well, that was that was a lot of build up for um, oh, too bad. It was a lot of build up for um, let's try something else. <laughs> Locutus, more like Locuti. Am I right? I'd like to add this biological and technological distinctiveness to my own, if you know what I mean. You know, we're back to this thing about Riker that we've discussed before. Is he really, truly not living up to his potential? Hmm. Because the... Part of it is all of this expectation of other people. And I like that he kind of fights back against that in the end. He says, look, you know, my decisions are mine and mine alone. You know, what are what are our expectations of success? What are the expectations of success of the people around him? Is it more successful, ultimately, that he stay where he is? We're talking about this future where, you know, you're really not dependent upon an income necessarily it's not like the the captain makes so much more money mm-hmm. than the first officer that oh if he if he doesn't take that promotion he can't afford to put food on the table <laughs> you know we're not in a situation like that at all yeah um so i i think it's an interesting idea to explore this that, that Riker can just say like hey i like where i am because this is the thing that we come up with in star trek a lot of people just saying like you know but hey, look, we're we're just gonna we're just gonna stay right where we are because that's good enough. And then we might argue, well, every time the Enterprise comes along and says, No, that's not good enough, <laughs> then that's where that's where the trouble takes place. There's also this student becoming the teacher theme in this episode. But then at the end the student goes right back to being the student, hmm. maybe. You know, if you look at that role as being the student, and I, I don't think we necessarily do yeah he is he is filling a function it's not that he is subordinate because he's not as good as the captain right he's subordinate because that's the chain of command um well and he's subordinate because he chooses to as well i mean what's yeah yeah one of the things that's most interesting about all the about all the discussion that Riker does just through his discussion, we see uh, character growth. We've talked in the past about how there was there was pretty much zero character growth in the original series until you get to the movies, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a difference in storytelling or storytelling style or what audiences expected at the time, but nobody was really watching Star Trek in 66 to 68 to see James T. Kirk change and grow. But mm-hmm. you do see Riker change and grow here. I mean... Picard mentions it. He says, you know, you were kind of headstrong and not really thinking so much when you first came on board here. Riker's talking about, I I love, there's just a subtle thing again, where Riker says, uh, when he's sitting there talking to Deanna about it, he says, I gave up. And he sort of pauses and motions towards her and says, so much. 
for what I wanted. Yeah. And I, and I love the fact that he's actually sitting there now going, man, what am I doing? And it doesn't feel like one of those silly things where, you know, like on Marcus Welby, suddenly Marcus is wondering whether you should have become a doctor. I mean, this doesn't feel like, you know, one of those all of a sudden he's got this crisis thing. I mean, go back to the uh, to the episode with his father as well. I mean, you've got you've got Riker sort of wondering what he's doing as he goes, not in a stupid way, but in a, in a sort of reflective way. And it invites us to do that as well. Yeah. Well, hey, but remember, Riker is his work. His work is his life. It's true. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I do have to say, Riker is a really good leader in this episode. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the, the beauty of seeing this unfold is that it, he really has his moment and he's terrific in the position. We've seen him be a leader on a on a smaller scale um, with an away team or something like that. But this is is really excellent to see him come into his own. Um, you talked one time about the admirable quality of just sort of jumping into anything, you know, essentially never saying no. Mm-hmm. And and how not many of us really ever can or will do that. Um, Riker is totally capable of command, but he prefers in this instance to stay where he is in, in the end. And I sort of wondered, is that sort of like a George Bailey message? Is that like a, it's a wonderful life thing? Riker sees his alternate life as a starship captain, but he's like, no, I, I, I had it great <laughs> just staying where I was. Don't don't explore the other beyond. Don't don't go beyond the home that I know. Don't go beyond the place that I know and the structure that I know. I, uh, I, I like it where I am in the other chair, not the middle chair. Well, I'm, it, it could be that, certainly, although I had a sort of a weird um, I had sort of a weird thought about the whole thing. Would you rather be the manager of an olive garden or the house manager of Tavern on the Green? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can yeah, yeah. you can command. It's a Melbourne. It's a good mm. ship. It's fine, but it's not, not the anymore. Enterprise. Well, that's yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Things don't go well. But I mean, at the time, uh, he could command the Melbourne. It would all of that would be his. All what like eight decks maybe, and all two hundred fifty <laughs> people on board. I mean, we right. don't know anything about the Melbourne, but we do know about the Enterprise. It's an exceptional ship with an exceptional crew that you know saves the galaxy more times than not. Uh, so, I mean, it makes sense that he would want to stay there. I'm actually weirded out by how nobody else gets that. I mean, Picard seems to have this idea that he's pushing Riker out of the nest. Mm-hmm. And I guess I don't understand why nobody sees that being second in command aboard the Enterprise is way better than being commander of, you know, the Excelsior or the Melbourne or whatever. Um, that's why you and I peel potatoes on the Enterprise. I was I was actually offered a pastry job on the Excelsior. I didn't tell oh, you. Yeah, but here's the thing. Oh, would you rather make pastries for, you know... That or, or or be part of a very small part of you know the, the whole enterprise thing. Um, well, no, I, it, it's a totally reasonable. It goes back to this idea that I was saying about the expectation really being on the other person, not on the person who is having this 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 question, this crisis of career. Not even a crisis. You could inappropriately say that to anybody. You could go to somebody who is say uh, a, a store manager or what, or maybe a podcaster, mm-hmm. <laughs> and say, "Hey, you know, you should be a lawyer." Right? Well, uh, okay, but I don't want to <laughs> because my satisfaction comes from doing what I'm doing right yeah. now. You know? yeah. So it, it is a little presumptuous for Picard to just say, "You, you should go be a captain." Uh, <laughs> Somewhere go, go get else. on that other ship. Exactly. You know, like, oh, oh, no, I kind of like it here. At the same time, he is taking a risk with his career, though, and there's no guarantee that when Picard re- re- retires, 
excuse me, retires or gets assimilated or whatever, uh, that Will will get the Enterprise. I mean, Admiral Hansen was the senior uh, officer on the Enterprise for a bit. If if the Borg had come in and picked up Locutus or picked up Picard and turned him into Locutus while Hansen was there, Hansen oh. might have actually taken command of the Enterprise. And then with his admiration of Shelby and her go-get-him attitude, she might have actually ended up commanding the Enterprise once he left. Or, yeah. you know, Starfleet might have slotted somebody else in once they dropped Hansen off someplace. Um, it's, I mean, it's probably fine with Riker because, I mean, he still right now is where he wants to be doing what it is he wants to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's sitting there actually waiting for Picard to die or waiting for Picard to go away. I mean, he's he is he's living up to exactly what he wants to be. Without being at the top of the org chart, he is self-actualized at this point, I would say, even right. if he has one less pip right. than Picard. Right. Um, I am kind of bothered that he's not actually, you know, required to come to acceptance of that because, you, as you said, he sort of gets that George Bailey moment. Yeah. Right, where it's like, you know, well, should I be captain? Should I not be captain? Well, here, be captain for a while. And I was like, okay, well, thanks. I mean, I would rather he just, like, sort of accepted it on his own. Um, now, there is another reason that Riker might want to stay his first officer. I mean, he he still gets to get his hands dirty. Um, when the Borg come and pick up Picard, turn him into Locutus, his immediate thought is, okay, give me a phaser and a couple of security guys. I'm going after my guy. And, you know, as we pointed out, uh, Deanna has to say, mm, no, you're pretty much bound to your ship at this point. You might get to go, like, on a a diplomatic thing maybe or if we have to meet the the head of some planet or something like that but otherwise yeah you don't get to just grab a phaser so i mean there there are a few reasons that he might be happy where he is but ultimately he's happy where he is you don't even have to know what the reasons are that he's happy where he is yeah he's just cool doing what he's doing and maybe everybody else should back off a tiny bit (laughs) i would agree with that um let's talk about shelby's approach her Mm -hmm. style and and what is wrong with that a lot, I would say. Um, and, and I'm kind of surprised, though, that Picard doesn't see through it. Because, you know, uh, Hansen is very much a supporter of Shelby. Um, but Picard doesn't seem to be a person who is easily blinded by personality and certainly not by sucking up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a little surprised that that he is sort of you know, okay with the idea that she is how she is. Now, granted, she's saving the worst of her personality traits for Riker. Right. <laughs> but again, that also seems like poor strategy um, to just let somebody know right ahead, hey, I am here to take your job and I will keep fighting you every minute to get your job. Seems like something a little more subtle would uh, would be the way to actually win that. But um, Well, she's not there to take his job from him. She's there to take his job once he's done with his job. I mean, the thing that they're trying to set up, and we didn't actually see this much of this from Riker, but the thing they're trying to set up is she's a lot like him. She's a lot like how he was. He became more seasoned is what Deanna says. Or, you know, Picard says she reminds me of a a young lieutenant commander that I recruited to be my first officer. We Mm -hmm. never saw that, but they're, they're telling us all the way through that there are similarities there. And certainly it could explain... One of the reasons that he doesn't really seem to like Shelby that much, you know, we've talked before about what is it, the enemy within, how the thing that Kirk hates is the thing that in himself that he sees. Right, right. Right. I mean, so, I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Maybe Riker looks at her and goes, man, I, I remember being like that and hate it. It's also <laughs> possible, though, that he's just looking at her going, yeah, just shut up and calm down, you know, and not yeah. just because because she's young and, and, and full of steam, which he actually says as well. 
So I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's the reason that Picard doesn't see through it because there's nothing through which to see. Picard looks at her and says, eh, I remember how long it took to get Riker to be cool, but I got Riker to be cool. Yeah. And maybe. now he's super cool, maybe. so maybe she could be as well. What I actually liked was how Riker was able to look past that when it came to it. I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't like her. He actually says, you know, we don't have to like each other. I didn't like the way it was done. He's like, you know, we don't have to like each other. Well, I know. But I do like what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. But listen, you got to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Just like I had to when I became first officer. Okay, am I getting the job? Am I not getting the job? I don't know what's happening now. I do like the fact that he was able to look past you know, his personal differences to, okay, what's actually going to be the best for everybody involved? No, I don't like this person, but that is the she is the right person for the job. So I'm going to you go know, ahead it, and work with it, that. It's funny. I, I thought about that because I thought if it were Kirk, he, he would say, as he did to um, Decker, Mm-hmm. in Star Trek motion picture. You'd be like, no, 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 no. I, I have my own, you know, I, I'm in command here. I have my own crew. You get to be the um, special assistant to <laughs> the, you know, because we right. still need you. Right. We, we still need your skills. I'll, I'll be in the middle but, chair. I'm going to have, uh, Spock is yeah. going to be in the second chair and you're going to be in the sit down and shut up chair. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I mean, certainly Riker has got a great team around him because you've got Dr. Crusher who you need and you've got Data who you need and you've got Worf who you need. And, you know, so shuffling around that group, including Shelby, I, I don't think you're going to have a losing hand either way because they're all there. They're all senior officers. They're all part of this. In fact, maybe that would be an interesting thing to see in an episode like this is that we are so focused on the top, you know, five to eight people involved here Mm -hmm. that you don't get to see everybody else. Had this been a movie, (laughs) you don't get to see everybody else at, you know, when they call down to Jordy and say, prepare for warp speed, we're going to crash right into this. So they don't tell him we're going to crash right into this other ship. (laughs) So there's a lot of other people doing a lot of other work that we don't get to see that we're not aware of. Even, even the guys peeling potatoes are like, we got to peel these way faster. By the way, was there any discomfort for you at all? I understand. And maybe I shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So Riker goes to Worf and says, Worf, you're awesome. You've been nothing Mm -hmm. but great, but I need you a tactical data. I know you're not going to care, but you're not going to get this job because (laughs) you don't have anything. Uh, Deanna, of course, isn't going to get it because she's going to be, um, you know, the the person who's trying to help everybody through everything psychologically. I don't even know what her rank is. I can't remember. But she's obviously not going to be second in command. Yeah. Beverly and Jordy are in the room. Mm. <laughs> right. It doesn't even make it. It doesn't even like nod their way. You know, like, Jordy, you understand why I couldn't possibly make you and Dr. Crusher. Um, he just apologizes to two of the officers <laughs> that are part of senior staff, not the other two. And then says, but this person who we met like 20 minutes ago, she's obviously the right choice. Yeah, right. And kudos to Jordy that he's even not offended. Maybe Jordy yeah. say that <laughs> going, yeah, I knew I had no job shot at that. That's fine. Well, you know, maybe in this particular situation, that's a job you don't want to have. <laughs> maybe. You know? <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or maybe Jordy is, you know, as self-actualized as Riker was before Picard disappeared. Yeah, I yeah, want to be yeah, a head right. of engineering for the Enterprise. Woo! You know. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. what I want. Yeah. yeah. How about that talk with Guinan? Um, she says we have to let go of Picard in a, in a really kind of profound and great way. And I, all I could think about is 
that when you have a, a death of a, a key figurehead, you know, think of like a Walt Disney or a Steve Jobs, and a person like that dies, and the people around keep asking, "Well, what would he do? What would Walt do? What would Steve Jobs do?" And that's it, it's interesting in an academic sense, mm-hmm. but it's really not helpful at all, <laughs> given given this situation you, you can't run a business like that and apparently you can't run a starship like that either yeah um, you know well, you, you mentioned steve jobs i mean the, if you've read any of the stuff about steve jobs or if you read any of the interviews that tim cook has had jobs told tim cook don't think about what i would do when i'm gone i'm gone this is going to be your company at that point you can't spend the rest of your life trying to figure out how i would handle things yeah and i mean that's i mean that's sort of a neat thing that I mean, bummer that he had to say it, but good that he got to. Right. Yeah, you could totally, I mean, you could totally run yourself into the ground trying to do things the way somebody else did, but then anybody could do the job. If all you're doing is an imitation of Picard all the way through, yeah. then, I mean, then you got nothing. You might as well let Locutus run the ship. Right, right. But hey, uh, the Borg... Um, at least according to them, uh, they're they're not bad guys. Mm-hmm. When you uh, when you talk to Lucius, the mouthpiece for the board, they just want to make the universe a better, more efficient place by by bringing their kind of technology and and cooperation and a dependency, their outlook, um, kind of like the Federation. <laughs> <laughs> really? Well. I'm being a little facetious there, but you okay. know, uh, Worf, Worf says to Locutus, I like my species the way it is. And yeah. Locutus says a narrow vision. So, um, yeah, if, if, this were, was, if this were longer or if this had been a movie, because Locutus actually would know, oh, really? Your species that kicked you out? Your species yeah. <laughs> that literally turned its back on you? I don't mean figuratively turned its back on you. I mean, I was in the room <laughs> when your species <laughs> pretended you weren't in the room anymore. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but it was an interesting bit of nuance to add to the board that it's not just is not just assimilation for the sake of assimilation. Mm-hmm. It, it, there is this sort of driving philosophy that we are improving things. This is our our Borg Improvement Society by showing up and taking over everything that you were and and not maybe in their view not losing it, mm-hmm. merely adding it. For the greater good. Well, yes. The version of the greater good is a terrifying, zombie-like uh, machine dependency, but... Well, only terrifying if you're not part of it. hmm <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I mean, so, okay, so so what do the Borg say? They, they're going to add your biological and technological distinctiveness to their own, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that sounds like infinite diversity... But in not one in one combination. In one combination, exactly. Infinite yeah. diversity, sort of ground up, and then you know, put in a casing. Maybe right. it's like it's like the sausage of the universe. Um, <laughs> they're they're they're. I mean, they they are going to be everything, and they are going to add all of this distinctiveness to what they are, and so that is going to make everything better because they are going to be everything. They're not evil. I mean, they they really the Borg are not evil. We talked um, when we did Q Who. I sort of, I sort of uh, presented the idea, and I actually went back to check my notes on this. Presented the idea that uh, that the Borg represented some sort of mindless business or corporation, right? Uh, the right. quote I used was "one vast and ecumenical holding company," the way Ned Beatty, Beatty said it in Network. They got zero feeling. They got zero thought for the individual. But but they are they are they are trying to make everything better, as long as they get to be everything, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I actually found most interesting about the Borg this time is they've adapted. 
business isn't going the way they thought business was going to go. They should have just been able to take over the people from the enterprise, right? Or knowing that the people from the enterprise are there and having studied the little interaction they had, they're not going to be able to you know, steamroll them the way they were other societies or cultures or planets or what have you. Here, they've actually adapted. They've decided, you know, they need an ad campaign. They need they need to use propaganda. They need a spokesperson. Um, somebody who's going to sort of ease the transition or ease the uh, sort of mergers and acquisitions that the Borg are part of. Makes sense, yeah. Now, I do have I do have one question about, their, about the person that they chose. Mm-hmm. Um, you lead the strongest ship of the Federation fleet. You speak for your people, is what the Borg said about uh, Picard. Uh, do we not still have a Federation president? Or, or some sort of governing something or other. Have we turned all governing over to Starfleet at this point? Because, I mean, Picard is a great character and a great man who does command the strongest ship in our, you know, fleet. But then I got to ask, do you happen to know who commands the strongest ship in the Navy? Right. No, I don't. <laughs> and is that the don't. guy that yeah. you would want speaking on all things at that point? Um as we record this over the past few years, we can't even really seem to decide who among our elected officials uh, speaks for us. For the past seven years, as we record this, the legislative branch has been engaged in you know, thinly veiled hostilities with the executive branch. <laughs> so I, I just found it interesting that that you know, the Borg, and maybe it's because it, we're the only humans the Borg have come in contact with at this point, right? Yeah. Picard did a good job. You know, he sort of shut us down or he sort of impressed us. So, So we want that guy. And why are we going to tell him we want him? Well, he leads the strongest ship. Okay. Or do you think, you know, it was just hearing him talk last time with that great sort of Shakespearean voice? Yeah, they're just like, <laughs> if we're going to sound like anything, we're going to sound like him. Exactly. Yeah. If you'd come no. and been like, oi, Locutus <laughs> ear, it'd be like, no, okay, we can't no, have him. No. No, I do think it makes sense from a strategic point of view. I mean, the, the Enterprise is the flagship of the of Starfleet, anyway. Yeah. So it, Picard has tremendous strategic knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also sort of the first really great catch before you get to Earth or get to wherever the president of the Federation may be. Right. So maybe they're just seeing Starfleet at this point as the the biggest piece of the federation even though to us it would be the equivalent of somebody taking like you said a military commander that doesn't that doesn't necessarily represent the US or certainly not the earth as a whole yeah. um, but they they are the first they're the first stop on the way to getting there well except i mean the borg aren't generally speaking ones to butter somebody up I mean, what they actually said again to picard was you lead the strongest ship of the federation fleet you speak for your people Right. I mean, is right. that just how the Borg see it? Or, or maybe this is part of their new ad campaign, too. <laughs> this is part of their new business. Yeah, we're going to hire this guy. What are you going to tell him? Oh, we're going to tell him we're going to hire him. No, 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 no. Tell him that you, you interviewed lots of people, <laughs> but yeah. he is just absolutely the best. And, uh, and see how that works. With the most sympathetic characters in the episode, flown to smithereens. It is now time to figure out what we can take away from Best of Both Worlds. Assuming what we plan to take away has not been blown to smithereens.
An episode with so much anticipation around it, Best of Both Worlds Part 1 and 2. It felt like we would never get here, and, and, and now we're at the stage where we have to somehow wrap this all up. So, Ken, I will ask you what may be uh, a question that has the most obvious answer to it. Does the episode hold up? And we're talking, of course, about both parts uh, yeah. here. Yeah, part I, one and two. it absolutely does hold up. What's interesting to me is... Well, you and I found a lot to talk about in it. It's not mm-hmm. it's not the Star Trekiest of Star Trek episodes. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked me recently if 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 we did justice to how great we all think Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan is because it, it's a lot of explosion and chase and stuff like that. But you can't have Star Trek without Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. You can't have what happens to those characters without Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. This is not a a combination of episodes that's going to make you sit and you know really you know question man's place in the universe in a lot of ways in ways that I you know personally thought you know, some of the episodes that we've done in the past have. Um, it's still an absolutely amazing episode. Yes, you and I found a lot to talk about in it, but it's I mean it really is just a fantastic fantastic adventure episode as well. I joked about you know the music at the end of. Uh, at the end of part one and then how the <laughs> beginning of part two should have been a little less amazing. I've seen this. I don't know how many times and I don't know how many times I watched it preparing for our recording today. And still, when we get to the end of part one, my, my heart's beating faster. It, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, I messaged you last night. I mean, every time <laughs> I see it, every time I see it, it does something. Um, yeah. And then there's also the fun stuff to think about, about the Borg and about command and, and watching Riker grow, you know, I mean, so yeah, this, I'm trying to think of something I didn't like in this episode. And I'm sure if I watched it a couple more times, I could find something, but I don't think there was actually a moment that took me out the mm-hmm. way, I mean, there's, there's almost always at least one moment where you're like, eh. I guess maybe the only thing is maybe what you were talking about with the, oh, you look up at that and you know automatically what it is. I think, I think when, when Crusher said, this is amazing. And it's like, oh, it's a piece of machinery inside a giant machine. Yeah. If I'm looking for something to hate, that's it. And if that's, the, <laughs> if that's the worst thing I can find in the episode, then yeah, absolutely. I mean, for yeah. so many reasons, it holds up. What about you? Yeah, you know, it, it holds up better than I thought it would. And it's not because I had any negative feeling about this episode. It's just that when we do our show, we, we try to look at things kind of objectively and critically. And here's a show that's now, you know, 25 years on. Yeah. Um, but it, it really does hold up as a piece of drama, as a piece, you know, of, of action and character drama. Um, and, and I always approach these sort of famous episodes with a bit of trepidation because they are so well known. You know, it, it's like you and I had probably more fun talking about, um, you know, Spock's brain. Mm-hmm than we did necessarily City on the Edge of Forever. Now, City on the Edge of Forever is, by all measures, a better episode than Spock's brain. But City on the Edge is so famous, it's sort of like, well, what more do you say? Mm-hmm. And, and what do you really find? What do you really get out of it? Um, I was more engaged in the Riker story this time around, multiple times around, and less invested in what will become of Picard, because we already knew. Right. So that is one nice thing about having seen it, having gone through the story. You know, we didn't talk uh, early in our episode today about that anticipation uh, over the summer. And, and that famously, you know, Patrick Stewart tells a story about somebody yelling at him in a car, you ruined our summer. You know, this idea, <laughs> this anticipation built up around it. Right. Um, so that that's pretty great. And you you can't 
put yourself back in that position ever again, but you can still kind of feel the impact that that moment when Riker says fire. It, it's still chilling. It's still great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as a piece of drama, as a production, because the production values are so high for one thing. Um, it really does hold up. I would argue, too, for what happens with the characters, you could do that mm -hmm. as well. I mean, as I said before, you never got, in any of the original series, you never got any growth from the characters until years later, until, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Kirk was already T.J. Hooker by the time you actually got yeah. any kind of growth out of Kirk. And, and yeah. I mean, to, to, to be, well, we didn't know how far into the series we were at this point, but to be years into the series and have the character that we've been watching this whole time question what he's doing, uh, that character being Riker, question what he's doing yeah. um, and why he's doing what he's doing is kind of a fascinating thing. And one has to assume, and we just got a tiny taste of it, but as you pointed out in the recap, at the very end, Picard's sitting there and he's doing what he's doing and hey, congratulations and you did a great job and I appreciate you and thank you very much and everybody get out of here now because I'm going to drink tea and everything's normal. And then he picks up yeah. the tea and 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 just just stopping yeah, and and then just turning around and looking out. I mean, we're we're being let in on on a level of depth that we haven't that we haven't actually explored yet, that we haven't actually seen. But this is not that you know. Well, last week we saved the Earth, and this week, oh, tribbles. <laughs> you know, I mean, this, I mean, th this is going to be something that we're going to be. Uh, it seems likely anyway that we're going to be revisiting a lot of what's happened here for for a while to come. Well, no, it really changes Star Trek. You know, we, we talked before how about particularly seasons one and two of Next Gen in many ways felt like Star Trek by rote. Mm -hmm. You know, as desperately as they tried to not reference the original series, you could tell that the thought process behind the episodes was very much like the original series and not always the best of the original series. Um, but now you feel like Star Trek is something on its own that is something very different. They've had great episodes throughout season three, a couple of clunkers. Mm -hmm. but, but now you feel like, okay, this storyline is something that has tremendous impact and tremendous import on its own. Mm -hmm. So that that's such a... a, a key moment for this whole thing dare i say this whole enterprise <laughs> mm -hmm. so what okay, about, what uh, about messages? messages ah, ah. jinx you owe me answers messages okay. go <laughs> um that's what's difficult about this because yeah we, we look at stories that are critical to the story of star trek like the wrath of khan like sitting on the forever what they may be but they're maybe not heavy uh, uh, message episodes, moral episodes. Um, right. What are the little things that I picked out? Well, move on and adapt to the new situation. I don't mean adapt in the way that the Borg do, although I think you make a good argument for how the Borg have adapted. Um, but Riker, Riker is the one who has to move on and adapt. Now, he and the people around him don't totally give up. They don't totally give up on the idea that Picard isn't coming back, but, but as, a, as a practical matter, they they move on and they uh, they try to adjust to the new reality of of life without Picard. Well, that's interesting because I thought you meant adapting to what it is that Riker wants. Oh Riker, no, no, no. Riker, Riker is said. I, I meant the death of Picard. Well, yeah, that you know, too. Chalking him up as a war casualty. Yeah, but Riker is always all he's ever wanted to do was was be the captain of a starship. He thinks he's still under the impression that all he's ever wanted is to be captain of a starship. 
Yeah. But he's finally he's finally having to realize, no, it turns out this thing that I, I've always said that I wanted and that I've always worked for and that I always thought I wanted, turns out that's not actually what I want to be. So, I mean, he's adapting he's adapting a couple of ways, I would say. Yeah. Well, that's kind of maybe another way to put it, which I had written down, which is know where you want to be and don't take any guff from anyone who wants you to move. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> Everybody around him is buzzing in his ear about what he should do, and only Riker knows what he should do. Yeah. He may change his mind, and that's totally his prerogative. Yeah. That's great. He can go pretend to be the captain of any ship he wants on the holodeck. Mm. (laughs) Good point that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe there's a thing in here, and and I think this isn't just specifically this episode, but overall our relationship with the Borg, Star Trek's sort of overall message about individuality, that the Borg's weakness is their interdependence. Um, Now, you could take that to a a very uncomfortable extreme about humanity and say that it is totally weakness to be interdependent, which I I don't think we ever would make that argument. I don't think Star Trek would ever make that argument. Mm -hmm. But Star Trek does have this very strong overall message about individuality, and that that is strength. Right. Um, And I think another great line here that we didn't talk about is um, what Guinan says. When a man is convinced he's going to die tomorrow, he'll probably find a way to make it happen. So, optimism? (laughs) Hmm. Well, optimism, uh, maybe realism, not just assuming defeat. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. maybe. Yeah, I I want to, that that idea about interdependence being a bad thing, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, infinite diversity and infinite combination, Mm -hmm. not infinite diversity homogenized, not being boiled down to just, you know, we'll take the best of you and the best of you and best of you and we'll put them all together. And then we end up something that's like totally tepid and flavorless. Right. Um, I think I've only got one other message that, uh, because I like all the messages that you talk about there. Um, Sleep is very important. Oh, yes. That, that is the message that I took from this. That's what I'm doing when I'm not doing this show. In yeah. a partially humorous way. Uh, that The Borg had sleep as a low-priority subcommand system. Mm-hmm. That is wrong. Because what they were trying to do, they were like, you know, when they told Data, you know, do all these different things. Uh, give them a command to power down. Give them a command to go away. And then it's like, you know, give them a command to sleep. Well, it turns out that's the easiest one because, you know, that's the one that they don't care about. So taking care of oneself should be a top priority, John. Yes. And had the Borg felt that way, they'd have been able to stave off Data's attempts and take over the Earth. And I think that would be a happy, well, wait a minute. But you get the idea. (laughs) Not a happy ending, but, you know. And and seriously, though, Riker actually does make that case point blank in part one. Riker's like, listen, everybody's tired and you go to bed. And Shelby's like, well, I'm not tired and neither is Data, so we're going to keep working. And Riker's like, no, if we have to fight the Borg, I don't want you fighting fatigue, too. Take care of yourself, Shelby. Get some shut eye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I know it seems crazy that that might actually be a message, but you know, they say it twice. They do. Yeah. They do. That, that message for sure holds up. <laughs> but that, that's kind of the weird thing about this episode, though. For all the, the talk that many of us give to Star Trek being this, uh, the, this sort of cultural force about morality and messages, and, and that's why it's important well, sometimes you get an episode or a movie or something that's more about action, that's maybe more about character development. It's about these other things that that 
don't have to be purely focused on morals, meaning messages, but they're still completely effective and completely necessary to the overall narrative that is Star Trek. So, um, yeah, I, I, even if we were not giving huge emphasis to morals, meaning messages in today's show, um, it, it, it's still so critical and it still so works. And what messages we found, sure, I'll say they hold up. I, I, and I will as well. I hope we did it justice. I, well, you know, that's the hard thing to do with this episode. And that's why I said I'm, I'm usually more afraid of the, the popular important episodes. <laughs> yeah. Because everybody already has their own opinion out of it. Everybody already has their own sort of emotional investment in it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Let's go back and do Spock's brain again. Yeah. Or let's tell people that Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. All right, Ken. Next week, we're back with family. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Here is how to find your board name. Take the first letter of the street where you grew up, and the second letter of your middle name. And the name of the first person you ever kissed. Then, just call yourself Lacutus. It is the coolest name for a board. And transmission. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.